2 Corinthians chapter 2. This is one of those places in the Bible there where the people who were settling upon the chapter divisions missed it. Chapter divisions are not inspired of God. And I believe that the chapter should begin at the 23rd verse of the first chapter. It actually begins a new paragraph. So uh, that's where we're going to begin. If you would stand with me, please. I'm going to read uh, this portion. But, beginning with verse 23 of chapter 1, But I call God to witness against me. What uh, Paul is doing here is laying out what what a minister of the gospel often goes through. Uh, it may seem like he's being kind of self-focused here, but he's really not. What he's doing, he's laying out the trials and the struggles of a preacher of the, of the truth how, and what he contends with both in the world and among uh, the, the uh, members of the church. And so he is defending his own ministry here. And he says, I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming to Corinth again. They thought he was vacillating. His critics were pointing out that Paul uh, didn't keep his word. Paul said, no, it was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith. But we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. You, you are the ones who are standing firm in your faith. That is, we help it, but we have nothing to do with it. That's God's work. And then I want you to notice as we begin into the second chapter how many uh, fours start sentences. These are reasons. He's, he's laying out a series of reasons here. Four, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Four, because, see, if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? You need to fix it. It's got to get fixed. See. Verse 3, And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who have made me rejoice. Who should have made me rejoice. For, again, because I felt sure of you all, of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For, another reason, because I wrote you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, he begins something different, but it's connected. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. 
you hurt each other, see? You're hurting each other. For, and here's another reason, such an one, uh, for such an one, this punishment for the majority is enough. So that you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. And this is referring to an incident that's recorded back in the fifth chapter of the first Corinthians. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient. And there's the problem. Are you going to believe me? And do what I, I ask in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have for, uh, forgiven, indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs or devices. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit had no rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. And I'll explain that. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia, actually to Philippi. But thanks be to God, who, is, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers or charlatans of the word of God, but as God, but as, but as men of sincerity, that is without wax, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Thank you. You may be seated. As I emphasized earlier, Paul here is laying out what it is to be a servant of God ministering under the commission of Jesus Christ to the people of God. And the trials and the tribulations which that brings, it's not easy. It is not an easy road. And I believe that uh, spiritual leaders are, are, in fact, uh, the scripture says not many of you should be teachers because the teacher is held to a higher, much higher standard. He's going to have to give an, a, a greater account to God. You don't want to take this on unless God himself has called you and has commissioned you to this ministry. Because they live to very high standards. And sadly, in America, the church is full of leaders who don't live up to that standard. And that's one reason why we're in the mess we're in. 
The church ought to be a powerful influence on society. Now it's just shoved to the side. It's neglected and forsaken. It shouldn't be. And that's often due to the leadership. That's why I'm constantly examining my own heart before God. But three things here by way of introduction I want to point out. Number one, leaders, spiritual leaders are accountable to Christ. We don't do this for ourselves. We do this as servants of Jesus Christ and He is King and Lord. So we read there in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, let us run with endurance. It's not easy. It's very difficult. But let us run with endurance the race set before us, that God set before us. And this is for you too. How? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Who, for the joy that was set before him, Paul uses that word frequently, and here it is again, for who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Was it easy for Jesus to go to the cross? Well, why didn't did he cry out in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Some have tried to explain that what Jesus was really saying there was Satan was trying to kill him there and not let him go to the cross. But Satan was ignorant of what was going to take place on the cross anyway. No. It was a difficult thing for him to face. Very difficult. But what he accomplished in it was joy for himself and for all those he redeemed. So, despising the shame, it says, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You know what Paul's saying here? He's setting his King of kings and Lord of lords at the right hand of majesty. And he must reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet. Wow. So, Paul here is telling these believers at Corinth, I'm not lording it over your faith, as some of my critics are accusing me of, of trying to be the boss, of telling you what to do. I'm not doing that. But rather, to work with you. I'm working with you. For your joy. Notice, for your joy. And for you to stand as you, as, actually, as you stand firm in your faith. You stand firm in your faith not because of any preacher or any minister of the Word. You stand firm in your faith because of the work of the Holy Spirit of God. But understanding your position in Jesus Christ is part of the teaching process and a part of the ministering process. Which sometimes... Involves some pain and some discomfort. But it is to result in your exceeding joy. What is joy? What is joy? It's not, it's not just happiness. It is happiness. But joy is more than happiness. It's the deep, 
and lasting satisfaction and happiness that is the fruit of the Spirit abiding in those who are in Christ and who walk by faith. So Paul tells us in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and so forth. The joy of the saints at Corinth was a direct consequence of their standing by faith. That is, and what is faith? Faith here is not just believing something, but it is the full confidence that Christ is salvation and life for the believer with nothing else added. Jesus is my all. He is everything to me. Faith is not something the believer brings to the table, but what the Spirit of, of God works in the heart of those whom He has regenerated. We are being saved by faith, or through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So, Jesus is the Lord and the only Lord of one's faith. And who is faithful? The one who is faithful is the one who, like Christ, runs with endurance the race and is consistently walking in his life by faith. That's what we're shooting for. Consistency. We talk about maturity. What is maturity? Maturity is consistency. Developing those principles of life that you consistently exercise. So then the second thing that a spiritual leader does, he's commissioned to care for Christ's sheep. And that's what Paul's expressing here. So we read there, in 1 Peter chapter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Notice that? How the sufferings of Christ come into this. Christ suffered. We're going to suffer. The people of God are going to suffer. So as elders, we are witnesses of, these, of the sufferings of Christ which are in him and in his people, as well as partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed after all of this suffering is done. He said, then he orders them shepherd or care for the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Here again, Paul said, we're not lording it over your faith. And here Peter uses the same idea. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion. We're not, a, we're not your boss. But willingly submit. As God would have you, not for shameful gain. He's talking to preachers. You're not in it for the money, guys. It's not how many jets you own, how many big homes you have. 
Uh-uh. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So, not domineering, again, not domineering over those, lording it over uh, those who are in your charge, but rather being examples to the flock. And why? Because when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. What is the preacher doing it for? He's doing it for the fact that one of these days Jesus is going to come back and when he does, you're going to have to stand before him. And I don't want to have to stand there and be ashamed that you are not going to get everything that you ought to get because I failed you. You see that? Thus Paul here ordered his actions in accord with the needs of the Corinthian believers. He's telling you, I'm doing what you need. Not what I think I need, but what you need. And his joy was connected to their joy. He was confident that their faith was genuine, that Christ would work salvation in them, but nevertheless he's struggling because of the uncertainty of many of the unanswered questions. This was a time of trial for Paul. It's not easy. He shed many tears. He said many tears. A heart of anguish. Much affliction. Out of much affliction. An anguish of heart and with many tears. Not because I wasn't wanting to cause you pain. But, to, but that you should understand the, the abundant love that I had for you. And then thirdly. Spiritual leaders are required to then sometimes rebuke. And that's the problem. And that's what this was all about. Paul rebuked them very severely in that first epistle in the fifth chapter as I pointed out earlier. To rebuke. Error. When you do wrong, you need to be told. You are wrong. When you're disobedient. You need to be told that's wrong. That you're dis you're disobeying, and failure. You're not living up to the Lord's expectations of you. Fix it. If you're a Christ, if you claim to be a Christ follower, be a Christ follower. Leaders, then themselves have to be genuine. And have clear consciences. And be examples. We're examples to the flock. Of the sincere faith that they. That he expects of them. And the object of the rebuke here. Was the repentance of an offender. And this. Was to lead to a firm and secure faith. And that demonstrated the strength. Ability. And the joy that would come from being right with God. And that's the point. So, in the text here before us, Paul gives us an example of uh, spiritual leadership owing to his own personal, uh, not owing to his own personal ability, but rather, as Paul confessed, who is sufficient for these things? I wrestle with that all the time. <laughs> I'm not 
I, I am not worthy of this. I am not. I, I have no sufficiency in myself. But the sufficiency is of God. As he stated there in verse 16. But he was a man of sincerity. We talked about that. Sinicera from the Latin. Without wax. He wasn't trying to cover up his mistakes and his errors. He was genuine. He was commissioned by God. Look at verse 17. There. For we are not at like so many peddlers of, 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 the, of, the, of God's word. Which unfortunately we see too many of today. But as men of sincerity. As commissioned by God. In, in the sight of God. So, speak, so we speak in Christ. So, first of all, I say I have three things here that I want you to see. First of all, it was Paul's tears. Now, Paul's not being selfish here, or he's not being self-focused here, but he's revealing his own personal trials in the matter to correct the, view, the wrong views that critics there in Corinth were leveling against the Apostle Paul. So in this second chapter, he's finishing up his defense of his own ministry that he began in the first chapter. And we looked at that last week. And basically, it's over his a defense of his decision not to make a return visit that he had previously promised. And he's arguing here, again, uh, in light of his critics, that he was not being vacillating in it. But rather, it was to spare both he and them, him and them, of another painful encounter. He would rather the Spirit of God work it out through his letters. In fact, in one place he said, they complain, they say, Paul, when he's with us, he's not much to look at. He probably was a little guy and not very handsome. And maybe not, uh, maybe had a little squeaky voice. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to be curious to see what Paul really looked like. But he said, You weren't very impressed with my appearance or my speaking. But they said his letters are weighty and powerful. You know why? Because they're inspired of the Holy Spirit of God and used by the Spirit of God in a powerful way. That's all Paul really mattered to Paul. He was not one for making plans according to the flesh, to the his own desires, saying yes, you know, and then vacillating, well, yes and no, yeah, I can't really make up my mind, you know, that kind of thing at the same time. But he rested on the promises of the faithfulness of God in Christ, which are always yes and amen in him. His critics at Corinth were Judaizers. Who were the Judaizers? These were Christian Jews who couldn't give up their Judaism. And Judaism itself was an error when Jesus came to Judah in the fullness of time, born of the Virgin Mary and walking in Galilee. The Jewish faith that was practiced then was not what God instituted through Moses on Mount Sinai. 
It was a cobbled mess that had been developed in their captivity in Babylon. Cobbled with, with paganism as well as Old Testament. And it really was a, was a form of salvation by works. The Old Testament does not teach salvation by works. It has always been by grace and will ever be by grace. Through faith. It's introduced in the Old Testament and, and in the law demonstrates the need for, our, for salvation through faith. And that works will never accomplish it. But the Old Testament also proves the hardness of the human heart and the fact that, that the, the gospel of grace under the new covenant, and, and Paul's going to develop that in the third chapter. Why the new covenant overrides the old covenant. Why the old covenant was set aside for the new covenant. But the Old Testament is the foundation of it. But these critics came and said, uh, you can't be saved unless you're circumcised and you follow our Jewish principles. Paul said no. So they accused Paul of being antinomian of not believing the law and that was not what it was all about at all so Paul in fact they even claim see Paul and Paul dealt with that too in first Corinthians some say I'm Paul some say I'm a Peter and some say I'm a Christ <laughs> the ultra spiritual we don't call Paul or Peter we follow Christ well, that division and confusion here is a problem that Paul says needs to be dealt with. So he refers to his previous letter here, and which is likely 1 Corinthians. I, I wrestled with that, whether there were four letters or three letters. But uh, we don't have one. I know we don't have one, but we do have these two, first and second. And so the purpose of, the, of that letter that he sp speaks of here in this was that the church should get mat these matters straightened out before he came to them. I didn't. I put off my visit not to so that it wouldn't be painful to you. And I did so so that I would allow you the time to fix the issue and get these things straightened out before I came to you again so that we could have a pleasant time. And not have to go through this again. And then second Paul's tears here were due to the pain that uh, he mentions there in verse 4. For I wrote you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and many tears. So better to suffer the anguish here. Better to go through the trial here. Better to, better to experience the problem now than wait for Jesus to come when it's too late. And so what we, saw, what we saw, and I pointed out, out to you as we read it, that we have here a series of reasons for his action, one which follows another. And he calls God to witness against him if he's not true in them. There, verse, 
chapter 1, verse 23. And he was not seeking to lord it over their faith as they were accusing him of. He wanted them to understand that he was working with them for their joy as they stood firm in the faith. That's verse 24. For that reason, he was determined not to make another painful visit. Chapter 2, verse 1. And he also wrote them as he did, warning them that when he did come, they would not have to go through again the pain of rebuke in chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. Indeed, he was confident that the outcome would result in their mutual joy based on the love they had for each other. Remember here, the Lord assured him when he, was, when he first went to Corinth, Paul, don't worry. Keep on keeping on. You're going to suffer some things, but I have a lot of people in this city. Well, what, what confidence of faith that Paul could face and say, I know it's going to work out because God told me. There, Acts chapter 18 and verse 10. So, men of God, commissioned by God to shepherd his people, then will speak many things that seem to hurt and offend. Indeed, it is necessary for believers to face the issues of the flesh that uh, might be overlooked. And see, here's the problem. We overlook a lot of the problems in our own spiritual lives simply because of the deceitfulness of our own hearts. The heart is deceitful above all things and incurably wicked. Who can know it? And we pridefully think everything's right with, with ourselves and with God when it isn't. And then when it's pointed out to us, we have distress over the thing. So it's growth in grace. And, it, and the growth in grace is designed to move us from the world to a higher spiritual plane. So we're to walk. So walk by faith and not by sight. Walking is behaving. It's lifestyle, see? It's a lifestyle issue. And if we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, according to Galatians chapter 6, verse 16. So then Paul tells us in Romans 6, 6, we know that the old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. That's what it's all, that's what we're, what it's all about. It's this body of sin being brought to nothing. And this was Paul's desire then for the Corinthians. But seeing it accomplished, that's the problem. It causes pain both in him and in them. That brings me to point two, and that's the repentant transgressor. Paul shifts over here to discuss the, the uh, repentant transgressor. This, is, this goes back to chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 again. And this probably was the heart of the issue, this issue of forgiveness. I think some of his critics say, saying he wants us to forgive the guy, but he's not forgiving him. Look how harshly he treated him. And if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you'll see that. In fact, I'll share some of it with you here uh, in a minute. But uh, the situation he referred to then is as a member of that church had committed an open sexual sin. He had his father's wife. Apparently this fellow's, uh, it's not his mother, it was a second, probably a second wife, maybe his father passed away, maybe they were divorced, who knows. But the son 
then married this woman who had been the father's wife. The, the Old Testament scriptures are very clear on this, that that is wrong. In fact, even the pagans, Paul said the pagans will not tolerate this. But you're, you're tolerating it. You let it go. Oh, yeah, but we're afraid if we, if we say anything to him, he'll quit the church. And, and he's a good giver. We don't want to lose his tithe money, etc. No. In fact, Paul said, you're boasting of your tolerance. You're bragging about it. Yeah, we got a sinner in our church, but boy, I'll tell you, we're forgiving Christians because we're not doing anything about it. Paul said, no, no, no. He, you're to turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. You know, God uses Satan. And, and it's, Paul's not talking about it in a literal sense. He's talking about it in a spiritual sense for the destruction of the flesh. What what does what God want of our flesh? He wants it to die. We're to die to, the, to self. We're, this flesh has to be crucified with him. And sometimes Satan is called on by God to do that for him. Like he did in Job's case. You can touch his body, but don't take his life. So, and why? So that the Spirit will be delivered on the day of Christ. Paul is saying, look, there's a day coming when you're going to have to stand before the judge of all the earth. You want things to be right when you do that. Not made right there. As we talked about last, last week. What, what's it going to be like at the judgment seat when all of our life gets burned up in the bonfire of His judgment and all we have left is a handful of ashes? We'll be saved, but so is by fire. I'd rather not have to experience that. So Paul made it very clear here that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11, through 11, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. If this fellow does not get this sin right, it is because he is unrighteous. And the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Many professing church members have issues in their lives that have never been straightened out. The Spirit of God is to do that work and it's not being done and it's not being done because that person is not a believer. He's a professor, but he's not a believer. And Paul is very clear. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. It will, be it will be gotten right before that time. So do not be deceived. Neither sexual immorality, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, contrary to our woke standards, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Paul said, you were 
Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 through 11. Churches must purge the evil from among them. That's what he told them in 5.13. Purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump in Christ. Kind of referring here to the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So here's a test. Would the church obey? And as I pointed out, sadly, modern Christians know very little about church discipline, and that's why we are so anemic. Many preachers are like those whom Paul described as peddlers or hucksters of the Word of God. They live by what they hope to gain for themselves in their work. Self-seeking, not serving Christ or His people. Secondly, their, the response needed by the Corinthians was this man to this man's sin was to obey God for both the purity of the church and for the salvation of the sinner. The church acted by Paul's letter and they disciplined the man. And what was the result? He repented. Now they were treating his repentance like they did his sin. They just ignored it. So Paul said, you got to fix that too. He repented. He needs to be received back. You need to put your arms around him and love him. And encourage him in the things of God. To forgive and to comfort him so that he would not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrows. That's what he says there in verse 7. Paul then assured them, Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. I did it. I didn't even need to be there to forgive him. And I did it because it needed to be done. And then thirdly, so that this matter could be understood, it was an issue of spiritual warfare. We are in a spiritual war. It's what Paul describes here in Ephesians 6. Satan loves conflict and division. And the Lord's servants must not be outwitted by Satan. So the text literally says, if there is to be no advantage gained over us by Satan, we must not let him have any advantage over us by letting this member remain lost to the church through despair thus furnishing Satan with a weapon a repulsive harshness ah oh, these people they just they hate sinners they have a repulsive hardness to the sinner, to the repentant no Paul says we're not ignorant of his designs that brings me to the third thing and Paul does a leap here. He's going to explain a lot of this further in, uh, in the epistle. But uh, in verses 12 to 17, he talks about triumph in Christ. Now let me explain, first of all, let me explain what triumph, 
what he means here. He causes us to triumph in Christ. Jesus is reigning right now. And he's putting all of his enemies under his feet. You know what that means? He's taking them captives. And that includes us. We've been conquered by the gospel. Jesus went to the cross. And now God has given him the reward of his sufferings, which are believers. We were conquered. <laughs> we, oh, but I willingly came back. Not you were made willing in the day of Christ, but you weren't made willing because you, <laughs> there is no willingness in you. Except God puts it there. He conquered you. So, in the Roman days, if a Roman general went out and, and made conquest, what happened was, they had a triumphal procession after the victory, coming back into his town, where his governor, or maybe the, to Rome, where the emperor was. And they, the, the victorious army then would march the streets would be lined with people singing and, and shouting and uh, uh, welcoming them in. And then at the end of it, there were prisoners with chains around their necks and around their wrists being led along, heads down, conquered. That's what Paul's talking about here. He makes it sound like a triumphal session. Whoa, man, we are just, oh, we're rejoicing. And uh And then he's, he uses this aroma. What, the, what this was, was, the priests, the pagan priests, would walk along with, with uh, censers by these conquered people. Maybe because they stunk so bad. <laughs> Who knows, you know. But uh, uh, waving these censers. But here's the difference. The believer in Jesus Christ is then used of God to be a fragrant aroma to those to, to the world in both those who are saved and those that perish. You know why the world hates us so bad? Because we are the aroma of Christ to them. And they can't stand it! He describes his unrest here as not getting the report from Titus. He sent Titus to the church, and, and I think it's possible that he sent this third letter that we don't have with Titus at that time. Now he's waiting to get a report from Titus. He's on his third missionary journey. He, he went to the city of Troas. It's a port city in Mycia, in Asia Minor, the area called Mycia, near the Greek city of Hellespont. And he went there to preach the gospel. Because he said a door was open to him in the Lord. But he didn't find Titus. And not finding Titus there, he upset him so that he couldn't stay there. You say, well, was Paul being disobedient? Because, I mean, he had this open door. 
I think Paul's using, he's saying here, I had an opportunity. This was an opportunity, but it's an opportunity that I gave up. Was it because there were, nobody, there were no Christians there? No, there were believers in Troas. Uh, if you'll remember back in, in Acts there when Paul uh, and his uh, workers there had finished their work in, in Galatia, they traveled, they traveled uh, looking for another place and the Holy Spirit said no here and then the Holy Spirit said no there. And, and finally they arrived, it says, in Mycenae, but that's the region. They actually were in the city of Troas. And in the city of Troas, Paul had a vision of a, of a man who from Macedonia who said, come over and help us. So they, they went from the, Troas then over across this, uh, the, Asiatic, or the Asiatic Sea there to uh, Philippi. And that's Acts chapter 16. There were believers there in Troas, we know that from, where is it, Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20. And I think this is the occasion. Paul goes back through there and he says, On the first day of the week when we gathered together to break bread. So there's a church. Paul talked to them intending to depart the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. And the guy, remember the fellow was sitting in the window, fell asleep and fell out of the window and Paul brought him back to life again. But not finding Titus there, he left for Philippi, Macedonia. And he describes his meeting with, with Titus there in, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 6 and 7. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort of with which he was comforted by you, because he brought back a good report. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Oh, yes! The letter was received rightly. They, they acted correctly. They were believers and did the right thing. So then Paul's confidence and the church was restored by Titus. Which then assumed the following verses in uh, verse 14. But thanks be to God. And that's when Paul says thanks be to God. He's, he's referring to that report. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him Everywhere. Is he spreading the knowledge, his knowledge, your knowledge of him? Everywhere. So the success of ministry does not lie with the preacher, but with God who calls and equips him. As I pointed out, the term triumph is used only twice in the New Testament. Here and in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. Listen to this. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed rulers and authorities putting them to open shame 
triumphing over them in it. In this case, he's talking about the, the enemy. So he's conquered both his friends and his enemies. <laughs> Paul regarded himself then as a trophy of God's victorious power over his sinful and rebellious heart. The conqueror was leading his defeated foe in victory procession due to Christ's power to subdue and to save. So three lessons here very quickly. First, have you been conquered by the triumphant king? Though, see, King Jesus. Submit to King Jesus. Those whom Christ leads in this procession to be his servants are those through whom he spreads the fragrance of knowledge of, it, of the knowledge of him everywhere. Verse 14, are we then the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing? Verse 15, do we this, we do this here by sharing the gospel with others and by living out the gospel in our own spiritual lives. Those who receive the gospel will be saved and those who reject it will perish. But that's not our business. Nobody is going to go to hell because you failed. But you may be called for your disobedience and failing to share. You see what I'm saying? This is accomplished through us in Christ. We, as Paul confessed, are not sufficient for these things. Only Christ is there. Second, Satan cannot gain advantage over those who are in Christ. Do not fear him. He may try. He may even be somewhat successful in the short term. But as we read in Colossians, he, the crucified Lord, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. Thus Paul assures us we're not ignorant of his devices, Satan's devices. Believers need not fear the devil, but only beware of him. As Paul Peter says again in First Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith. We need not fear him. And thirdly, to serve the Lord, we cannot harbor sin and self. Can't coddle self. Have to say no. Self must die. Christ must reign as Lord of all. We are to obey Him sincerely and humbly as He reveals Himself to us in the Word of God. As He said in verse 17, we are, we are not to be like so many peddlers of God's Word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we are to speak in Christ. Father, thank You for the Word. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to share it today. And we ask, God, for your grace in it. And we'll praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.